little overcast today. Well, we had, what, three beautiful days this week. Really great. No snow. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So we had uh, some really nice weather. And uh, I'm enjoying the, my flowers. I have various irises. I think they're just gorgeous. I just like all flowers. But uh, God does good work. My gosh, beautiful. So I enjoy that. So, all right. Here we are in May, the fifth month already. It's amazing how time flies. It goes very quickly. We were just talking here in Sunday school. If you look at the, the last, the the bottom of the prayer ministry guide, it always has pray for our sister churches. And Lebanon Church is the one we should be praying for this week. And I see that Irv Houston is the pastor there. I would imagine that it's interim because you all remember when Irv was here, uh, Irv told me that he does not want to be full-time, that he feels his calling is to be interim. And uh, so I, I'm assuming they're having him as a, an interim pastor. But we will pray for Lebanon Church of the Brethren. Uh huh. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he, he had been uh, interim pastor here with us, and we enjoyed his ministry. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good for them. Good for them. So, I I wasn't sure whether Irv was still doing that because he had, when he left us, he was going uh, thinking about going into missionary work, and uh, so that's good. That's good. I'm glad to see that Irv's still active. All right. I don't think we have any uh, other announcements to make. Uh, I think everything is okay as far as that goes. Uh, sharing joys and concerns. Christine, do we have any updates that you need to give? Yeah, I see you're putting your mask on. Okay, let me get mine on. I'll get over there to you. some additions. I know when I talked to Susan, our secretary, she had already done the bulletin like Tuesday or Wednesday, well, Tuesday, because she did it early. And I got her Tuesday in time to get some things put on, but I have gotten prayer requests since. And a uh, prayer request would be for uh, Helen Wagner, who is a friend of Eleanor Long. The Wagners live right down here in this little farm as we're going from the church. That, on the right-hand side. Yeah, on the right-hand okay. side. Yeah. She's to have surgery May the 24th. She has an aneurysm in the brain area. So we're talking very serious here. Any surgery serious, but this is very, very touchy thing. And um, I had gotten a request from Jeanette Crider to have her sister Fanny Arndt put on. Um, I'm trying to think what day. 
I'm not sure, I didn't mark the day, but she had been admitted to the Hershey Med Center for COVID and was very ill at the time. She wouldn't have been admitted if she wasn't very ill. And I, as far as I knew, someone did tell me she, I didn't get to talk to Jeanette, and I, I wanted to, but I didn't before today. As far as I knew, I think she did come home, but I need to verify that, though. Okay. But just keep Fanny in our prayers regardless. Okay. And uh, another addition I have here is uh, Nancy Baker, our sister-in-law. Uh, she's having a knee replacement done May the 26th, and I'd like to have her in prayer for that also. And I know there are some other things. I'm going to let Marion give a report on Rodney Holland, her grandson. Okay. And um, other than that, that's what I have up to date. I've been getting a lot of requests for people. And I found out about two deaths. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure what day they died this week, but uh, some people will know. The one was Jury Kreider. She was one of the twins of the Espen Shades. It was Jury and yeah, I can't say the other one. Anyhow. Uh, Pauline, Jerry and Polly, and Jerry just passed away. And some of our congregation people know who she was. And uh, also from Stauffer's Church, uh, Becky Schistler, she's a uh, wife of Jake Schistler. I just found out on Saturday that she passed away. So, and they were a couple that we knew, and Paul and I knew very well too. And uh, so it's just happening, you know. And, and of course, we have in our prayer guide about Vicki Aldinger. I have that on here that I got that in in time. So yeah, it's just things happening all the time. Yeah. Lots of prayers. Yeah. So I'll let whoever else wants to. Yeah, and I understand Paul was telling me he had, had laser surgery on his eye. Yes. So. Yeah, I know it's going to be tough. Oh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> okay. You didn't hear that. Christine says he doesn't listen, so. He's probably the only man in the world that doesn't listen. She acts like she knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, how does she know that? Who, who, uh, who was I coming to? There you are. Sorry, Harriet. Our grandson, Rod, he had his spleen taken out on Friday. It was as big as a volleyball. Woo. And the surgeon said that's the third biggest one he ever saw. Wow. And uh, he's doing good. His heart rate's up to is at 80. It was up to 150. Now it's 80. And his uh, platelets are up. So he's doing well. Good. Yes. Good. So good. I hope they got the problem. Yeah. 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 Well, I understand uh, from Susan Gepper, our secretary, that uh, David had his gallbladder removed. Yeah, I think on this past Thursday, I think. So uh, we'll keep him in prayer, too. Who else would like to share? Yeah. Oh, yeah, put <laughs> I uh, just would like you to keep me and Jenny and our family in prayers as uh, tomorrow we're, we're going to welcome into this world a, a new grandson. So uh, 
that will be our eighth, our eighth grandchild. So, yeah, so just keep us in prayers that everything goes well and praise the Lord for the new life. Yeah. yeah. Eight grandchildren. Yeah. I thought you looked pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> Who else? Eight grandchildren. That's wonderful. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Cake and ice cream, right? How many years? 36. <laughs> Doug, she was putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Who else would like to share? Anyone? Okay. All right. All right, let's move on then. We have a hymn to sing as our opening hymn, ladies and gentlemen. So, good morning. It's wonderful to be back with you again. Uh, I'm enjoying my time that you're giving me at the pulpit. Uh, I hope uh, you're just getting something out of the sermons that the Spirit has led me to write. And uh, it's funny how things work. Uh, I know there's at least one gardener here. Uh, do we have any other gardeners? How about some farmers? Do we have any farmers? Yeah. Yeah. So we know how, uh, if we have gardeners and farmers, they at least know how uh, much the soil conditions uh, matter. So uh, without any further, we'll, we'll get into the sermon here. We're going to be reading today, if you want to, there's other scripture in here, but the main scripture is going to be Acts 8, 26 to 40. How do you do when it comes to sharing the good news about Jesus? There are some of us that sharing the good news about Jesus is very natural. It comes easy for us. But for others, we find it very difficult. That's me. We get tongue-tied and nervous. We even worry that, they might, that we might say the wrong things. Yet we know we should say something. We know that God has changed us. And because of that, we know he can change and help others as well. We want to be a witness to the difference that Jesus has caused in us. Today we will be taking a look at Acts 8, 26 through 40. I should, I should have called this sermon, The Church on a Mission. And by, God, by God's grace, that is what we are becoming, a church on a mission. But one of the ways we will be a church on a mission is if we are individuals, Christians on a mission, who make up the family and the faith. We are each people, people on a mission to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The eighth chapter of Acts zeroes in on one such Christian. His name is Philip. He was one of the original seven deacons that we read about in chapter 6. 
who we were chosen to perform who was chosen to perform a service ministry in the church but even though he was called to to the serve in the ministry of serving food to widows he didn't see the ministry limited to that alone he as well as Stephen were powerful pe- preachers powerful claiming <clears throat> I'm sorry Stephen preached preaching cost him his life and it was because of Stephen's powerful proclamation that Saul initiated the severe persecution against the church. The severe persecution caused the, the dispersion of the scattering of the church. Philip was one of those who left Jerusalem because of this intense persecution. But he didn't go silently. He went preaching and proclaiming the good news. As such, at the beginning of chapter 8, we see God perform the God twist that only he can do. The sorrow of being displaced from their homes in Jerusalem was replaced with much joy because many in Samaria were believing and coming to the Lord through the gospel. They were surrendering their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This was nothing less than a fulfillment of Jesus' promise and commission in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now because of the scattering, at least part of that promise was being realized. The gospel was being preached in Samaria. Today, by contrast, we will see someone who has a genuine, authentic, saving faith. And that person is the Ethiopian eunuch. We've already seen the gospel break through the barriers of the Samaritans. Revival has broken out in Samaria in this passage. We will see the gospel break through the final barriers of Acts 1.8 the ends of the earth. This Ethiopian was the first Gentile convert. Samaritans were half Jew. Ethiopians were not Jewish at all. Samaritans were still Palestinians. Ethiopians were Africans. Jesus' promise is coming to pass. This passage is a fantasizing account of how God used a faithful and obedient servant in Philip to bring about the conversion of an individual. And as we consider the different elements of this account, I believe it will give us confidence and courage to be witness of the gospel in our own lives. Three things I want you to notice about Philip's witness, the Ethiopian eunuch that served as a model for us as well. First of all, notice the preparation of the soil. If you have a garden or you're a farmer, you want the ground to produce a harvest. In order for that to happen, you must diligently prepare the soil. The same goes for planting the seed of the word. In the parable of the sower, only only the good properly prepared soil brought forth fruits of salvation. This text indicates these were three features of the eunuch's heart that revealed a proper preparation. God's sovereignty proposed salvation, both in its eternal planning 
and its temporary outworking is totally God's work. Salvation originates in the sovereignty will of God, and it is implemented by the sovereign grace of God. The Bible describes the human condition in painful terms. In Ephesians 2.1, it says in a short yet potent verse of scripture, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. If someone is physically dead, it lacks the ability to respond to physical stimulus. In the same way, if someone is spiritually dead, that person lacks the ability to respond to spiritual stimulus. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the natural person does not accept things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Every man, every woman, boy, girl, at the very core of their being are sinful and completely unable to understand and accept the things of the Spirit. It doesn't matter what they look like on the outside, how noble, how smart, how attractive. On the inside, at the core of every human being is a dirty heart. You probably heard of the phrase, as pure as snow. Well, that's not totally true either. Did you know that every single snowflake has its origin a particle of dust in the atmosphere? As the wind carries dust into the atmosphere from the surface of the earth, water vapors condense around the dust particles and then crystallize, eventually forming into a snowflake. But every snowflake, no matter how pristine it looks, at its core is nothing more than a piece of dirt. The same is true for every human. No matter how you dress it up, every human at their core is dirty. Every one of us has sinful nature. The spiritually dead condition is an insurmountable barrier to responding to Jesus with saving faith. But God, in his sovereign grace, begins to work both internally and externally to draw people to himself. This is what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch's life. God begins to arrange things and intervenes supernaturally in his life with Philip. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. The circumstances that led to this man's salvation were not coincidental. They were sovereignly arranged by the Spirit of God with every salvation, including your salvation, my salvation. God arranged it all. This, is, this was no mere chance encounter and certainly not the result of clever human ingenuity. Apart from the spirit orchestration of events, it would have never taken place at all. Me and Jenny went with eight other people on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic. When uh, the time came up to, uh, well, just to sign up for the trip, I didn't sign up till probably a month before we left. I wasn't where I am in my faith right now, and uh, I I always thought that there, I've I've been on a lot of mission trips, but I always thought that there was uh, 
enough people that need, were in need here in the United States. Why do I have to go to another country? You know, but uh, that Dominican trip cost about $1,200 each, and there was 10 of us going, so around $12,000 for us to go on this trip. Some might think, boy, that's a lot of money to go down there on the mission trip. Pastor Matt sat me down, because at that point I wasn't going yet, and uh, he sat me down and he said, you know, I really feel that you, you should be going down there, he said, and uh, he said, it's not about the money, he said, and, and yes, there's a lot of needy people here in the United States, he said, but uh, he said, uh, if you go down there, he said, I'm telling you already, he said, the Lord's been working on them people's hearts. They're, they're expecting you. And uh, he, he was exactly right. Uh, when we went there, it wasn't about just building the church that we were building the building. It was, I, I can't tell you how many people were just so anxious. Uh, and, and we had to do it through interpreters because some of them spoke English, but this isn't the... Uh, we weren't in the part of the Dominican where all the cruise ships and airports and stuff are. We were in the real little towns of, I couldn't even t pronounce the name anymore, the little town we were in. But then people were hungry for the gospel. They were hungry for the word of Jesus Christ. And part of the reason I'm up here today is because of things that happened on that trip. So, uh, if you ever get the chance, don't worry about the money. God will provide that. He, and he'll, he will provide the, uh, the words for you to give. Uh, it's not easy for me to stand up here and speak. It's, uh, it's, it's only by his will that I'm able to do that. So, let's go into Philip's submissive will. That was my submissive will. In verse 27... And he rose and went. I want you to consider for a moment the rationality of what God was asking Philip to do. Here he is in, Samaritan, in Samaria. There is this massive revival that has been going on. Thousands are coming to the faith of Jesus. The ministry there is exploding. All kinds of people, great and small, powerful and weak, influential and unknowns, are hearing the gospel for the first time and coming to the Lord. As far as an evangelist goes, he's the Billy Graham of his day. And did you notice the commentary Luke added about the place where God was calling Philip to go? A desert road? Leave the bustling metropolis with a thriving ministry and go to the desert road where there's very few people travel? This is the opposite of what most see people do in ministry today. We don't see people leave a thriving big city mega church to go pastor to a tiny ch church in, in Pudunkville, USA. We don't often see people go from big churches to small churches. It's almost exclusively the other way around. They go from a small church to a big church. And I get it, I understand the attraction. But God called Philip to do the non-typical. He called me to do the non-typical. 
he calls him to leave a thriving ministry and go down to the desert road. And the text says, he rose and went. I don't know how long of an interval there was between the initial call from God and his submissive, obedient response. I don't know how long he wrestled with the decision, but at the end of the day, he submitted to God's call. He was obedient to the Spirit's prompting, but that's not how God, but that's how God works. He accomplishes sovereign work through availability, submissiveness, and simple human instruments. I think one of the most fantasizing forms of artwork are wood carvings. This was just an old tree stump before my son took a chainsaw to it. Now it's a butterfly, and if you stand over top of it, you can see the thing on the front's a flower. Uh, to me, it was amazing. My son was a, a certified OSHA crane inspector, and uh, he was on the road traveling one day, and he came to a chainsaw carving thing, uh, event, and he stopped, and he seen people were uh, making things with chainsaws and selling them. Well, about six months later, my son gave his resignation to the crane company <laughs> and became a wood carver. <laughs> and, I mean, he's, he's done pretty well for himself. So that, uh, that's yes, just one thing. But anyhow, one of the most fantasizing forms of artwork to me is wood carving. It's fantasizing how an artesian can take a black block of wood like this and through the skilled hands of an artist create something that looks like this. Now when someone sees a beautiful wood carving like this, no one gives praise to these wood carving tools. No one says, boy, that's some chainsaw. No one says, wow, the tools, the instruments that are used to create these are amazing. All of us are instruments. For use in the great sculpture's hands, in God's hands, we're his tools, we're his instruments. And as he's carving his masterpiece from time to time, he'll choose you or he'll choose me to be used in that work. Philip had a submissive will. He arose and went. Here's the third thing to notice, the eunuch's searching heart. God had arranged the details of getting Philip to the eunuch, and Philip responded with a submissive will. But God had already been at work in this man, and as such, he was changing and searching his heart. Notice how verse 27 continues. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasuries. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And in verse 28, it says, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, I know Mike mentioned the other week that you were uh, studying Isaiah, so some of this stuff will sound familiar to you. In that day, Ethiopia was a large African kingdom located south of Egypt. To those in the Mediterranean re region, it represented the outer limits of the known world. The real power and authority in that kingdom lay with the Queen Candace. She was, that was not her proper name, but her title, like Pharaoh for the Egyptian king, or Caesar for the Roman king. 
And here you have the man who was in charge of all her treasure. He was the chief financial officer for the Ethiopian kingdom, the head of the Department of Treasury. The text also says he was a eunuch. What is a eunuch? Simply put, a eunuch is a castrated male. In that culture, this would be a common practice, particularly in the royal kingdom. This This particular eunuch has risen in the ranks of the royal administration to the place of CEO. Here's what's so amazing about this story. Not only was he a Gentile, which would have been a huge barrier for most Jews, but he was also a eunuch. In Deuteronomy 23.1 is quite graphic in this description, but it forbids a eunuch for having access to the temple in Jerusalem. As such, under the Old Covenant, he would never be able to worship God fully, but this is the New Covenant, and this spirit is breaking down all kinds of barriers. The barrier of his ethnicity of his ancestry and the barrier of his maimed condition as a eunuch. The text says he had come to Jerusalem to worship. That's about 1,200 miles journey one way. While in Jerusalem, he could have gone to the synagogue, but not to the temple because he was a eunuch. We don't have details on how he came to learn about God of, the God of Israel. We do know there were some displaced Jewish colonies in northern Africa. He may have been exposed to their faith at some point and traveled to a long journey to Jerusalem to learn more. It's obvious he was searching. It's obvious that he had a searching heart, and his search had taken him on a 2,400-mile round-trip journey by chariot. God met this man at the point of seeking and he met him in a dramatic fashion, sending Philip the evangelist to him. This is all part of a divine gardener soil preparation. And God had done this type of soil preparation billions of times before. He knows what he's doing. Every person who comes to faith in Jesus, everyone who is saved has been prepared by God for their divine encounter with truth. That leads to the second thing to notice about Philip's witness. The explanation of the scripture. In verse 28, and he was returning, he returned seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And in verse 29 it says, and the spirit said to Philip, Go over there to join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. This man had a desire to know God, and he was aware that in order for God to be fully known, he had to be known through the scripture. He was an eager seeker. To to possess a personal copy of a scripture would have been a tremendous financial expense. But the Ethiopian, the CEO, obviously had some deep pockets. And he was willing, because of his desire to know God, to purchase his own copy of Scripture. We would know nothing about God except that he has been revealed to 
He reveals himself to us. God has chosen to, re- chosen to reveal himself generally in nature. The existence of God and some of his attributes can be seen and understood in a general way by looking at creation. But God has specifically revealed himself in scripture. The only way to know God fully is to know him through his word, through the Bible, through the scripture. Now something here, to, something to note here. Philip was sensitive to the spirit's prompting. And verse 29 says, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. We don't know if Philip knew that it was the spirit talking or if he gave him a gentle nudge. But there was one chariot, there was one eunuch, or one seeker, and there was one evangelist. So Philip ran to him. I thought about this in modern day terms. Imagine if you were walking down the sidewalks of Hershey. You come up to a red light and you look next to you on the street and there is a car waiting at the red light. You run over, knock on the window, and ask, do you mind if I get in? That would be a little weird. In today's world, it would be pretty dangerous to do that. (laughs) But God is orchestrating all of this to get Philip and the Ethiopian in the same place at the same time. Now what we will discover in that Philip witness to him was rooted in the scripture, because that's where the truth comes from. The truth comes from the Bible. And the same must be true of us. In fact, there are two aspects of Philip's scriptural explanation that serve as benchmarks for us in evangelism as well. Our witness must be Bible-based. So in verse 30, it says, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And the man answered, and he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was was this. Like a sheep he had led to the slaughter and like a lamb before it sheared his silence. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied to him. Who can describe his generation? for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I asked you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? You can see God's divine sovereignty in all of this. Not only was this eunuch a God seeker, and not only had he purchased a copy of scripture at great personal expense, and not only was he reading out loud when from it when Philip ran up to his chariot, but he was reading from arguably the clearest Old Testament passage that describes the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. He was reading from Isaiah 53. God has divinely orchestrated this encounter. In verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip started here from the scripture and began to tell the eunuch about Jesus Christ. Here's the application we need to understand from this. An effective presentation of the gospel must be based on scripture. Our witness, which I have told you in the past weeks, 
my witnessing must be Bible-based. No doubt the use of, your pers of our, my personal testimony can be helpful. A wordless book, a salvation bracelet, gospel tracts, those all can be helpful. But is the word of God that is to inspire the spirit of God? And God, God does a saving and sanctifying work through his word. There is power in the word of God, so our witness must be Bible-based, but secondly, our witness must be Christ-centered. And then in 35, it also says, Then Philip opened his mouth and begins with Scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. If you, ever get, if you never get around to talking about Jesus and his life and death and the bloody shed and the resurrection for our salvation, then you've never witnessed a gospel, witness is no, a gospel witness is no witness if it doesn't talk about Christ. I know we can drop little hints, little God hints, in our conversations with people. God bless you. And we, we can say, I'll pray for you when, when things ain't going well for someone or somebody going through difficult times. But that is not a gospel witness. They may set up a gospel witness, but it is not a gospel witness. It is not a witness until you testify about Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And might I add, might I add a sermon is not a Christian gospel-centered sermon if it never mentions Jesus and his work on the cross for salvation. You can go through the entire book of Acts and look at every sermon preached. They are all, without exception, centered on Jesus Christ. I visited the websites of a few different churches this week as I prepared for this. The first title of the one sermon was, Now What? What is this, that thing you wish was different about you? You tried to change your response, your circumstance, your behavior. It's not working. You just can't make progress. You can't break through. The next sermon was anything but average. Now, these are all big churches, mega churches. You don't want to be an average husband or wife. You don't want to be an average parent. You don't want to be an average friend, employee, or boss. The next one, the third one, was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all want life and liberty. Everyone wants to be, pursue happiness. But few experience those things, the fullest. Sometimes we feel trapped in life. We're unhappy. Why is that? One reason. We never uncover, discover, or re recover our stories. Do you notice a consistent theme in these sermon series? Who is the central character? Who is the person that the sermon's all about? You. How can we make a change? How can we break through? How can you be anything but average? How can you recover your story? It's all about you. And guess what? Churches that spend all their time focusing on you are exploding in growth because we all want it to be about us. As Toby Keith put it in his song, I want to talk about, want to talk about me, talk about I, want to talk about number one, oh me, oh my. We want to be the center of the universe. We want to be the center of attention. 
and who we want to be the main subject of the sermon, me. This is a man-centered preaching, but it's what our big churches are preaching today. What, I ain't saying that there is no good big mega church out there. There's plenty of them, but this is what most people that don't know Jesus Christ, if they go to church, these are the churches they go to. And it's up to us to, to get the gospel to them to, uh, to come to our churches. Philip opened his mouth, and begin, beginning with the scripture, he told him about Jesus. No doubt he turned to other passages, but did, did this with the intent of telling him about Jesus. Paul put it this way to the church in Corinth. He reminded them about his preaching style. And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with, with lofty speeches or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him being crucified. And that's in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. Paul was not just a baptized Anthony Robbins. He was not just some motivational speaker. He was a gospel preacher. Our witness must be Christ-centered at some point, in our evangelism. We've got to get to the main point. Jesus died for sinners like you and me to provide salvation for who will all trust in him. The offer of a salvation is still available and it's available to you and to me. Now I can't imagine as the Ethiopian eunuch heard Philip say, it's available to you. He may have had questions, he may have said, don't you see the color of my skin? Don't you see I'm not from around here? I'm from Ethiopia. I'm not of Jewish descent. I was prevented from going into the temple. Perhaps Philip took his scroll and turned to Isaiah in chapter 11 and read this in the 10th verse. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people of him, of the nation inquired, and his resting place shall be glorious. And in verse 11, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the rem remnants and remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Perhaps Philip said, Jesus Christ is the root of Jesse, the son of David, and as he has extended his hand of salvation to your homeland, the land of Cush, no more are you considered an outsider, but salvation has come. Perhaps the Ethiopian would have embracingly said, but not only am I an Ethiopian, don't forget I'm a eunuch as well. I understand eunuchs are prevented from entering the presence of God in the temple. Perhaps then Philip would have taken that scroll and turned to Isaiah 56. In verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from the people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, the eunuchs who kept my Sabbath, who chose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give them in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. 
And Philip could have said, with scriptural authority, it doesn't matter what you have done in your past. It doesn't matter what you're maimed by the sinfulness of the world. Join yourself to the Lord today, and you will have a name better than the sons of daughters. You will have an everlasting inheritance, and you will never be cut off. We can't know all the things that happen in this conversation. Philip, this high-ranking Ethiopian official, but we do know that he understood the truth of the gospel. We do know he understood the sacrificial death of Jesus and the triumph of the triumphal resurrection. Why? Because this was a divine preparation of soil. There were a clear explanation from the scripture, and that leads to the final point. The confirmation of the soul. This Ethiopian eunuch was gloriously born again in that chariot on the way, in that desert road somewhere between Jerusalem and Cush. And we can gather three things about the personal conversion from the text. First, he had a believing heart. In verse 36, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? From this statement, we can confer that along the way, Philip had communicated to him the importance of baptism. That baptism is the first step of a Christian obedience that once you have repented of your sins and placed faith in Jesus for salvation, they followed with a baptism. So the eunuch asked the question, what prevents me from being baptized? In other words, I repent of my sin and I trust in Jesus alone for my salvation. I am ready to be baptized. Again, consider the divine orchestration of this. They were in the desert, on a desert road. What do we know about the desert? It's dry. There ain't much water. As they were riding along in the desert, they just so happened to come upon a pool pool of water. You think that was coincidence? I think not. So the eunuch had a believing heart. Secondly, he had a confessing mouth. In verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him. In verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And in this baptism, in that pool of water beside the desert road leading to Ethiopia, this high official in Canis administration publicly confessed his faith in Jesus. What happens next is the spirit of the, is fantasizing I can't imagine the look on the eunuch's face when they came up out of the water and Philip wasn't there anymore. Uh, Just amazing. Sends chills through my spine. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. We don't know if this was like, beam me up, Scotty, or what. I figure there had to be some Star Trek fans. But all of a sudden, Philip is gone. But here's the third reason we know this eunuch had a genuine conversion, not only because of a believing heart and his confessing mouth, but finally, he had a rejoicing life. The end of 39, it says, the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Joy is the mark of a true believer. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the gifts. 
No doubt this Ethiopian eunuch who was so far from, away from salvation of God is more ways than one. We were brought nearer to God because of God's divine preparation of the soil. The explanation from scripture, which results in confirmation of his soul, a believing heart, a confessing mouth, a rejoicing life. Well, that leads us to the most important question of today. So what? How does this apply to my life individually? How does this apply to your lives? Together, collectively as a church, here's what I want you to consider throughout the book of Acts. Luke keeps coming back to the same theme. The word of God keeps going out and God keeps bringing people in. Luke is writing this record of the early church history to the man named Theopolis. If it, it's as if Luke wants to continually remind him that God is pattern, that God's pattern, God's people keep speaking the word and God keeps bringing people into the church. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We can't control whether or not people respond to our witness we gen with genuine conversion. All we can do is plant, water, fertilize, dig, weed, and trust to provide growth, and trust God to provide the growth in the people's hearts. Our last thought is we must be faithful to do our part and trust God to do his. I, I told you this last week that I lead a Wednesday evening Bible study, and uh, every now and then we get off topic in that Bible study, uh, and other things come up, and sometimes it's just a, a God-led thing that comes up, and or somebody will share something that happened during the week, and uh, my big question is, because I don't want to be the only one, I think this was spirit-led. I think most of the things that happen in my life right now, the people he puts in my life, I think the Spirit led me here to this church. Uh, I, I just, so, so my question to them is always, do you think it was Spirit-led? What, what, what brought this event happen, you know, to happen? And I find out most people say, well, not sure if it was spirit-led or if it was a gut feeling. And my response has started being to the people, you ain't that smart. <laughs> it, it's, uh, listen to your heart. It, most of the time it's God, and God is going to put people in your path that you're supposed to tell about Jesus Christ. And don't be afraid. I mean, I'm, I'm still nervous every Sunday morning when I get up here. If I could preach the end of my sermon, the beginning of my sermon like my end after I settle in, uh, I'd, I'd be a whole lot better off, I think. But uh, I, you still get the jitters. Uh, there was a time I, they couldn't get me to sit further than the third row back. Uh, but j just listen to your heart and, and go out and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and see if we can't fill some of these pews.